Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined by Gary Campbell. One of the reasons that we got talking was about equipment design. And from what you just told us, you're probably one of the experts in the hay world, in the baler world. And we can keep it to bales. What other aspects go into the design of the baler that might not be optimal for every condition? I'm of the view that the term expert gets bandied around a lot these days. Whereas I feel like if you haven't done 50 years at a subject, you're still learning. So like anything I'm saying is just, it's my experience, what I've seen. But um, I think one of the biggest things that maybe the end user doesn't realize is that there's massive variations in the ag industry. Like I say, a guy in Germany wants to put a guy in, Italy, who happens to ship overseas, wants density. Um, a guy in Canterbury, New Zealand, is dealing with um, grass seed straw that's really skinny and four foot long, which is different to an Irish farmer who's dealing with third cut grass that's really, really wet and short. And the designer is trying to appease all of those people with the same machine. Like there's a bell curve of users. You know, there's the guys who do a thousand bills a year. There's the guys that do 20,000 bales a year. And then in the middle, there's the guys that do like 5,000, and they represent the majority of users. So you're trying to appease all of them. And that's the, that's, that's the end user. Um, and then you've got differences like the Germans want, they've got a, a drawbar that hooks on just below the, the top. The Americans don't have pickup hitches. The French guys have low hitches. The Kiwis have got a a mixture of whatever got imported to the country. So you're trying to appease all them. You've got all the ISOBUS standards. So you've got a guy who wants to run a, a class baler on a case tractor so the ISOBUS works, but then case update their software and the ISOBUS falls over. And although there's a standard, it's not really adhered to that strongly. So that's always changing. The, tra- the tractors are constantly changing. I've, I did a lot of work with fertilizer spreaders for a few years and for instance, the Fent tractors, they've got like dual 140 liter pumps on them or something, which is just, if, if the user hasn't taken the time to set up the flow of the hydraulics, they end up cooking the back end of the fert spreader. And, but no other tractor on the market at the time I was doing it had that capability. So the, the Fent users would throw up a different set of problems to the John Deere users and a lot of stuff happened there. And then I guess you get into the internal, the internal customers, I guess. So whether, as a designer, you've got the the farmer or the contractor is your end customer, but you've got on the shop floor, you'd have like a laser cutting department that cuts the steel into the shapes. He's one of your customers and he's got his own wants and needs. Like, for instance, you can't, you can't laser cut a hole through steel that's smaller than the thickness of the, of the plate. So that's one set of parameters you've got. You've got a factory manager who's trying to minimize component count because every time you've got an extra component, it's another part on the shelf. It's another part number. It's another thing to be moved around. It's another another update to the parts book. It's another update to the user manual. Inventory um, carrying costs. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, if, if you can use a 30 mil shaft and get away with it as opposed to designing a, a new 35 millimeter shaft, you're going to try and use a 30 mil shaft because it's on the shelf already. You've used it before. 
the machine shop's spitting out a hundred at a time. It's cheaper. You've got the sales guys who they are all well. In my opinion, they're always looking for the new shiny feature, wherever that be. I don't know. Let's look at the peelers. You've got the like the hydraulic lowering twine boxes are on the market these days. Or I remember I got told by a head of design if you put an option on a baler, the Germans will spec it. It's just whatever whatever it is in that marketplace, the Germans love options, so they'll have a steering axle, they'll have suspension axle, they'll have hydraulic folding tailgate, bale ejector, lowering twine boxes. And maybe they make a difference to throughput or user comfort, but they're not really that big an innovation. But if you put them on the list, those customers will, will option up and it's, it gives you an advantage over the competitor. So they're pushing for new new features, new wants. Um, and then there were like the elephant in the room that a lot of people don't really acknowledge is the dealers don't make much money on the actual sale of the equipment. Um, their margins are pretty tight. It's it's the after sales and the, the part supply and the services where they make their money. So you could very well make a square baler that's going to last 100 years. It would, it would weigh 50 ton and suck about a 1,000 horsepower. But you could do it. But it's not going to be financially viable for the company that's manufacturing it. The dealer's not going to have to do any service. The dealer's going to serve no parts. So it's just, it's just this eternal balancing act of keeping the factory happy, keeping the dealerships happy, um, and the customer. And you're just, you're just trying to juggle all this at once. If you have a large producer, somebody that's putting 20,000 bales on a big baler in a year, and they start to have problems, what is the company's response to that? How do you think through that thought process from the manufacturer's side to respond to somebody that's using the machine, maybe properly taking care of it, but like you said, somebody that is really using that machine to its full capacity versus somebody that does half the volume and gets several years out of that baler? Coming at it from a design point of view, you would go and you talk to your warranty claims manager within your company and go, hey, we've got this customer that snapped five shafts. He keeps doing it, and he's jumping up and down and screaming, wanting it to get fixed. How many other customers have this problem? And the warranty manager will go for you and go, hang on. We've actually never seen this issue before. We're not sure what's happening. At that point, you start going, is this customer doing something different? Are they running 100 horsepower more on front? Are they bailing something weird that we haven't seen before? Are they just being a bit rough with it? Or are they just pushing the machine beyond what it was intended to do? You end up having to make a pretty hard decision going, I'm sorry, but you're an outlier. It's not financially suitable for us to try and fix it for you. Because if we made that shaft 40 mil thick, it's going to cost us more money, but nobody else needs it apart from this one customer. So you're just like juggling all of these different different parameters, trying to keep the machine at a sensible price that can suit most people. I think it depends on who you are. Like, because I grew up on a farm and I've done all the all the time driving, I'm aware that a broken shaft isn't just a broken shaft. You know, it's not just a hundred dollars for a new shaft. It's two days missed bailing. It's 100 acres on the ground and a rainstorm coming in. Like it, it actually goes beyond that. So you get put into a really awkward position. And it used to really 
like get under my skin having to make those decisions because I could see where the company was coming from. But as a as a farm boy, I was like, I don't agree with this. So it, it put you into a hard position sometimes. I've also seen people sit down and do real rough, just envelope calculations. This warranty costs us $1,000 per machine. We have a 1% warranty rate. A fix is going to cost us $10,000. It's just cheaper to keep warranting it. So those conversations happen too. Which um, I don't necessarily agree with, but I can see I can see why they happen. And then you've also got um, some some users are just in really strange places. I, I remember we were we were bailing in northern Italy, and we were working with like I think it's, it might be Durham wheat. It's the wheat they use for pasta anyway. There was like dust and material buildup around around the back of the knotters, and it would build up and build up until the point where the needles would come up and they would bend because they couldn't get through this buildup. And I was working with like a very well-respected big baler designer, and he was just like, I've never seen this before. Like I've been a farm boy. I was an apprentice mechanic. I've worked up to now I'm head of design of big square balers. I've never seen this issue before that only ever presented itself in one particular area of Italy. So when you come up against stuff like that, it's almost impossible to design for it, you know? It happens in one place in the world. Nowhere else had that issue. I'm Tom Swin, and I switched to the Vermeer TM1410 trailed mower. The biggest impact is capacity. We're just getting more hay mowed. It's hard not to be impressed by a 20-foot mowing and how much you can get mowed in a couple of hours. We went from 5 acres an hour to 12 to 14 acres an hour real easily with this. And that's why I switched to the Vermeer TM1410 trailed mower. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. You've said the golden age of machinery has passed as the age of technology for technology's sake has reared its head. Take me through that thought process. Yeah, um, I look back, because because we were a small farm back home, we were always running um, second-hand machinery. So uh, we had like 2140 John Deere's, like Deere's from like the, the sort of early 90s. We always looked at the older stuff. And I, I always felt like, the old machinery was just, it was just cool. You know, a, a guy would go out and he'd build it and he'd just go and field test it for a year to, to break it. Um, I don't think there was as, as much, not as much corporations. Like Harry Ferguson, for example, he, he actually grew up about 20 miles from where I'm from. One of his early tractors, you could fix it with, a, with two spanners. Like every bolt on that tractor was two different sizes. Harry Ferguson, famous for Massey Ferguson, right? Yeah, like like the Harry Ferguson. Yeah, his early stuff you could fix it with with a double ended spanner, and because he he had that thought process that he knew the farmer wanted to fix it and make it simple. Maybe like the seventies, eighties, you could just have a bit of a crazy idea, and you go and build it and try it. Whereas nowadays you have a well, in my experience, you have a a pretty out there idea. And you go and present it to, I don't know, the finance director or the CEO. And they're like, oh, that's a bit risky. It's all known. We haven't done it before. And they're just a bit more hesitant. And then, so I don't think there's as much push from innovation, probably from the big players, like your John Deere, your Massey, Agco. Like they're, they're a massive corporation. And at the end of the day, they're there to make a profit. So I don't think they're going to do anything too crazy. Whereas I feel like back in the 70s and 80s, it was a bit freer. 
So that's that's kind of one side of that. And then the other thing, mechanical engineering, there's a lot more a lot more tools at our disposal nowadays, like computer design, um, FEA stress testing and stuff. So they're allowing people to be a lot more a lot more informed of their designs. And I, in, in the past, I've had pieces of equipment where you, you do all your calculations, you run it through the computer, blah, blah, blah. And it says, oh, yep, if we make this out of three mil steel, it'll be more than strong enough. And you prototype it and look at it and go, the computer says it's going to be okay. But in the back of my head, there's 18-year-old Gary trying to get home to go to the pub. And he's going to break that. And you just you kind of know that even though the calculations are right, there's like the farmer fudge factor, we used to call it. Like you, you've <laughs> got to try and make it bigger than it needs to be because you just know like there's no way that I've come across to computer simulate a 300 horsepower tractor to its axles in mud with a baler of two bales in the chamber buried up to the axles and then maybe like a quad track in the front trying to drag it out. Like you cannot simulate that kind of stuff. It's, it's really hard to get that back into the design process if you haven't been there and you haven't seen it. That gives about the best mental picture that, that you could come up with. We've been there, you know, like I've seen it and it's it's what happens. There's probably a bit of a loss in the industry. There's not not as many people nowadays who've like, walked the walk, I guess. You know, they've maybe done their engineering de- degree and they've ended up for John Deere. Have they ever sat in a tractor? Have they ever driven one? I, w- I would doubt it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guys out there who who have come up from the you know the shop floor or the dealership or they've been a tractor driver or whatever. But I don't think there's as much knowledge in the industry as maybe there once was. I think that's probably that's probably a, a symptom of a much wider problem. I'm not sure what's like in America. It's one of the reasons why I actually chose to move to New Zealand, where like the ag sector is actually respected. So in the UK, um, I went to a fairly well-regarded school. And as soon as I opened my mouth and said, I want to do farming or agriculture or whatever, they were just like, nah, you want to you wanna go and be a doctor or you want to go and be a lawyer or like the sort of high-end jobs. I don't think there's many people out there as well who are encouraged in the industry. So there's a real brain drain happening too. So I've, I've definitely, we've looked around in previous jobs. We've been trying to find a new designer or a new field test engineer. And they're just, they're not out there. Whereas I'd say... 30, 40 years ago, it was still a respected, interesting industry. I don't think people realize just how up-to-date and complicated some of the modern machinery is. So although I say I feel the golden age is gone, that is very much from a personal, I don't see the crazy out there contraptions being built anymore. You know, some of the Ford tractors back in the day were really forward-thinking and um, the class guys in Germany were building, you know, crazy balers on tracks and all sorts of things. So I feel like that stuff's gone away, which I consider the really interesting, cool stuff. But the technology and the machinery, that's definitely made leaps and bounds. The GPS, the, the sensors, the automation, the hydraulics, like they've all very much in their golden age. Quite a different way of looking at it. You know, I think although the machinery is super complicated and up to date, the opportunity to really push the boundaries is probably gone. Does that make sense? It's my opinion that our business models suffer from all of those exact same things. The profitability engines that would bring somebody to agriculture are suffering from brain drains, are suffering from maybe a lack of coolness. You're talking about struggling to find engineers with an ag background. I think we struggle to find businessmen with an ag background in agriculture in general. 
in my part of the world. If you're doing a thousand acres of hay, that's probably enough to live off of. If you're doing a couple thousand acres of wheat, that's probably enough to live off of. If you're doing irrigated hay in central Washington state, maybe 1,500, 2,000 acres is is enough to support yourself and several hired men kind of scale. To get there now is hard. To get to that scale, to get to that level of business acumen, to run a farm big enough to live off of. We're suffering from all those same problems where we have a brain drain where the most talented people, maybe they do go to be doctors and lawyers. Maybe it just isn't cool enough to stay a farmer. Maybe it is a respect thing. Maybe it's the way society looks at agriculture. I don't have a good answer, but I don't think we have, to your point, the engineers, and to my point, the business owners in agriculture that we need. No, I think the industry is 100% suffering from a coolness issue. I'm, I'm always of the opinion that New Zealand kind of maybe like 20 years behind the UK in terms of like culture stuff. Like when I was a teenager, early 20s in the UK, like if you were out at a bar or a nightclub or something, like chatting up a girl and it comes to subject like, oh yeah, I'm off a farm, I'm studying agricultural engineering. You could just see them almost sort of begin to look down at you a bit and go, oh, like a farmer, oh, like that's a bit, a bit ben- not beneath me, but like it just it wasn't seen as being an attractive, interesting thing to do. But then it came down to New Zealand and the the rural urban divide in this country is, Kiwi farmers will say it's a big thing, but I'll say coming from overseas that it's non-existent in New Zealand almost. You know, I've got um, like a bunch of my peers, you know, in their early 30s are working for dairy co-ops, they're working for dairy plant manufacturers, dealerships, um, rural insurance brokers. I know three or four people who did like their degrees in finance and are now rural bankers it's there's still very much the focus on that industry down here but i think overseas certainly in europe anyway it's just seen as a a rural backwards industry that no one really wants to jump into and um at the end of the day like um i'm always a a little bit wary when farmers jump up and down and say like i'm the hardest working person in the world i i feel like that's a little bit not quite true but farming has got a massive set of demands on it. You know, it's very time heavy. Like you're tied to that farm. You can't really get away from it because of stock or you're trying to get the ground covered. So if you're a really good businessman, you're not really going to want to stay on a farm because you can go and do something else, get paid way better, get paid, get paid more, work less hours, and probably be better off for it. Like I, I would love to be back on the farm working, but it's just it's not a reality from the land that's in my family or the price you've got to pay for land these days like to have enough to be viable, which then you can kind of kick back and go, why on earth does someone have to have a thousand acres to make enough money to live on? You know, are the supermarkets pushing the prices down through the floor? Um, is there, I know there's a raft of different reasons you can look at as to why it's what it is. But I feel like the farm industry is probably the bottom of the chain. They're always struggling to make ends meet. So it's not a very attractive sector to want to walk into. I mean, like nowadays, I've actually been out of the industry for probably two years now. I've actually moved into like science R&D. And it was just, um, I've driven tractors since I was like, you know, 16 professionally, like professionally, got paid for it, did it for a job. 
never really had summer, was always working long hours, went into fetal testing again, long hours. And you just, I was finding that um, there wasn't any work-life balance. You know, I wasn't getting out to see the girlfriend. I wasn't seeing my mates. I wasn't getting to do any sports and hobbies. So after 15 years of that, I was like, look, I need to go and do something different for a while. But if I could get back into farming with a healthy balance, I'd love to do it. But I just, I don't see a way to do it at the minute. Um, I think that's a problem for the industry. Is there anything that can be done about it? I have the same observations. And I've worked the same hours <laughs> uh, trying to put together a farm. And it's really hard. What would you say to somebody that was trying to do it? Or is there a fix to this? There's more questions here than answers. And I don't have the answers. No real answers jump out of me. I, I think it's a bigger, a bigger systematic problem. I think if we get if we get um, the general public more engaged in where their food comes from, like I, I see a lot of I think it's pretty much worldwide at the minute. But there's this whole vegetarianism and veganism movement. And if you don't if you don't want to eat an animal because you don't want to kill an animal, like that's fine. I don't I don't care. Like that's up to you. Whatever. But it's it's becoming this over like environmental issue. And I think the bigger conversation needs to happen is people need to be aware of like food miles. Like I'd happily eat local food and pay a bit more for it rather than I don't know what it's like over where you guys are, but you know, we we've got like fruit and veg getting shipped in from Argentina or we're getting pork shipped in from China because it's a dollar cheaper per kilo so the supermarket can make an extra dollar per kilo profit. And if we addressed those things and looked at getting food produced locally, it might start pushing the price back up and people can afford to run 100 acres and make a bit of money off that rather than needing to make a 1,000. And then having to run a 1,000 acres with like two staff members because you can't afford to pay more than two staff members. Um, yeah, so I think there's a bigger a bigger system, like a bigger systematic issue that needs to be addressed before the farming becomes profitable again. I also reckon that there's a lot of guys out there, and this, this might piss some people off, but I think there's a lot of guys out there who are farming or contracting who don't really understand the numbers behind what they're doing. Like I've got guys back home who I know like working on a farm, but they're not getting a salary. You know, they've got a roof over their head and you know, food on the table, but they're not actually accounting for their time. So if you come into it with a, a strong business mind and you're not willing to work for free and smash yourself in to the ground working every hour of the day without getting paid for it, you're competing against guys who don't really care and they don't know any better. So I think the whole industry needs to become a bit more professional as well. It's always nice to have these exchange of ideas and thoughts and and maybe we help somebody understand a little bit why that bailer doesn't work exactly the way they hope for in their situation. It's been cool.